Good morning, Journey. Good to see you all. My name's Chris. Glad to be with you. It's always special when we get to gather together. I don't know if you heard, but Easter is coming. Um, and so in an attempt to not rush ahead to Easter, I'm going to draw us back to the present and help us sit here in the present a little bit longer, even though we know Easter's coming. And in order to do that, I'm going to first talk about my future doesn't make sense, I know. But here's, here's the announcement. I don't know if you were here a few weeks ago, but uh, I announced that I'm in beginning the process of planting a church in downtown Phoenix. And so we're, we're in the midst of uh, just unraveling that whole thing. Uh, my wife and I live in Phoenix. I don't know if you know that about us, um, but we, we live in Phoenix and I come back and forth. And so she's in residency uh, in Phoenix. She's an emergency medicine physician finishing her residency there. And so we've lived there for a little while now and are feeling like God's saying, okay, well, it's time to, to take the next step. And so we're beginning the, the process of planting a church. Um, the church is called Kaleo. And last time I talked about it, I did not define that for you. And people were like, what the heck does that mean? Sounds like paleo, but not. And it's kind of true. It's confusing to say. So it's, it's a nerdy name. Uh, Kaleo is the Greek word for called or, or to call. And it's the, the root word of the word ekklesia, which is where we get the word church from. So essentially, Kaleo would mean uh, a church of the called. That, that's kind of, got to explain it every time. And it's like, what, really? It just sounds cool when it rolls off the tongue, though, really. Kaleo. So anyway, that's, that's the name of our church in, in Phoenix. At the end of March, we had our first preview gathering. We have another gathering on April 28th. So that's something you can be praying about if you'd like to join in prayer. And then we'll do one more in the end of May and we'll launch weekly in September. And so we've got a good core group of people already a part of that. I'll be with you all through the end of the summer and then pop back from time to time and share some updates and what's going on. So you can join in prayer for that if you would like. I mean, I'd like it. That would be great for me. And then when you're really cold in the winter, you can come down and visit us also. So and that's a little bit of an update from me. Again, I'll get more information to you as it unfolds. Um, okay, back to the present. Right, there's no good transition to that. We are in the midst of a series that we're calling Suffering Loves Company. And it's running alongside the season of Lent. And the season of Lent on the historical church calendar is a season in which we have followed Jesus into the wilderness and, and align our lives with his suffering. And so what we're doing in this series, Suffering Loves Company, is we're taking biblical characters and we're identifying the ways in which they suffered and, and how they were accompanied by God, by people, by those around them. And you find what's interesting is you start to choose characters from the Bible who suffered. You find that you could, in fact, choose any character. Any person from the Bible has suffered because they're humans. And we all know that. We could tell any one of our own stories about suffering, and it would be true. So it's, it's quite uh, a powerful thing to align ourselves with the suffering of those who've gone before us and remind ourselves the ways in which God comes alongside of them in our suffering. And so today is no different. On this Palm Sunday, a week before Easter, we're going to be looking at the life of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And she's an interesting character because I would imagine that many of us have different reactions to uh, who Mary is and what she was like and what she was about. And so I was trying to figure out the best way to set the stage for this sermon today. And I decided what I would do is I would just read to you the text message I sent to my wife when I was trying to synthesize what it was I was gonna say today. So it's kind of a roadmap of where we're going. So here's what I said. It's wild to think about all that Mary, the mother of Jesus, experienced. All that went along with being told she'd give birth, to being pregnant, 
to giving birth to Jesus. And then 30 years of quiet, so to speak, on the promises that she was given. Then we get to a wild three years of her son then living out those promises to the moment of her sitting before the cross and watching her son be crucified, a heart-wrenching experience. And then she becomes one of those who has gathered at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell and the church was launched. What a woman and what a journey. So before we dive into the text, let's pray together. God, here we are today, gathered together as your people, as a family. And we acknowledge that you are here already among us. And so we invite you by your spirit to fill us with your love, to continue the process of forming and reforming and transforming us into the image of your son, Jesus. Begin the process now even of filling us with your love so that you might send us out with your power so that we can be your people in this world, God. I pray that if there's anything that would be keeping us from hearing from you and engaging with you today, that we would just humbly set that before you, let you take that, let you carry that for us, God. And God, I pray for myself. I pray that you'd give me your words to speak today. As always, I don't wanna say anything that's not from you or for you. We ask that our time together as we sing and pray and hug and receive communion and study the scriptures would be a time in which you're glorified and you're made known and you're made famous, but also that we would know your heart more, that you are a God who's with us. So meet us in this place. We welcome you. We invite you to teach us. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so let's meet Mary, the mother of Jesus. We're gonna be looking at the birth narrative in Luke It starts in verse 26 of chapter one. Here's how it goes. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and we're gonna meet Elizabeth here in a moment, okay? God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, greetings, favored woman or translated as Hail Mary. That's where that comes from. The Lord is with you. And so at this point, just stop for a moment and go, hold on, what's going on here? Because you've probably already rushed ahead. If you're familiar at all, even a little bit with the story, you're rushing ahead. But slow down and sit with this for a moment. Gabriel, an angel of the Lord has shown up and called her favored and reminded her that the Lord is with her. Here's how she responds. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. But she couldn't fully comprehend why the Lord would favor her or why he would be with her. And so apparently seeing this look on her face, her not needing to say anything at all, the intuitive Gabriel says this, don't be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. And you can imagine maybe Gabriel, the angel, like, ah, that's my speech. I've been working on that one, right? Kind of like dusts off the shoulders, sits back. She looks at him. But how can this happen? I am a virgin. And you just pause for a moment and you're like, okay, that's a legit question. 
Mary should be asking that question. She's like, great speech, Gabriel. That sounds nice, but how can this happen? How is this going to be practical? And the angel replies, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. And I'd imagine her sitting there going, that doesn't clear it up. Like I'm still, still not tracking Gabriel. But he goes on, he says, what's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. He's saying, look, God's already performing miracles. God's already doing something because people used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month for the word of God will never fail. Some translations say nothing is impossible with God. And how does Mary respond to all of this? Still, I'm sure, confusion all over the place. Mary responds like this. I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. So here we are at the outset of the story of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And the first one to accompany her in the midst of what's going to bring about some level of suffering in her life is the angel Gabriel. So sometimes it seems that God sends a messenger to come alongside of us, to comfort us, to be with us. And I think it's interesting as the angel Gabriel gives like this uh, announcement, it almost sounds like Mary won a prize, right? Like I imagine you win the lottery or something and somebody like comes and knocks on your door and they're like, you have won $10 million. And you're like, what? But what's interesting about the lottery is that you'll find anybody who's won the lottery usually regrets winning the lottery because all of a sudden their lives nosedive. They don't know what to do with the windfall. They don't know what to do with this new blessing in their life. And all of a sudden, everything's destroyed. Just Google stories of people who've won the lottery and it's like story after story of people saying, I wish I'd never even turned in the ticket. So it's interesting that this is the outset of Mary's life and what she's also going to suffer in some way. But I love that her response at the end of all of this is so humble, is so obedient because I mean, if we're being honest, this whole thing's kind of bananas. You realize this is God's plan for the world, right? God's like, I'm gonna send my son Jesus into the world. You know how I'm gonna do it? I'm gonna conceive the child and a virgin and she's gonna give birth to the son of God and we're all like, all right, just embrace the mystery then, God. Embrace the mystery of that. And so certainly Mary would be experiencing that as well as all of this is taking place. And her response is, I am the Lord's servant. Because apparently she believes that nothing is impossible with God. So after the angel leaves her, she immediately makes her way to the hill country of Judea, to the town where Zechariah and Elizabeth live. And she enters the house and greets Elizabeth. And the moment that she enters the house and greets Elizabeth, the baby that Elizabeth is carrying, which is John the Baptist, by the way, Jesus's cousin, leaps inside her womb. And it says she's filled with the spirit. How interesting is that? The moment Mary walks in the room, the baby leaps six months along in her pregnancy and babies are leaping. I just think about that. And she says this to Mary, Elizabeth, the one 
who'd been barren, who thought that it was hopeless that she would ever have a child. Only a miracle would grant her the gift of conceiving a child, and it's been given to her. It's happening. She's been down the road of suffering and disgrace and shame, and she says this to young Mary, teenage Mary, virgin Mary, who's about to be pregnant with the Son of God. You are blessed because you believed that the Lord would do what he said. So the company that Mary has now is the company of a mentor, of someone who's been there, who's been down the road of suffering, who knows what it's like to carry that pain, that shame, that disgrace. She carried that with her, one who could not bear a child. And then here comes Mary, one who's given the gift of a child but has to bear the child outside of marriage. She has to carry the stigma and the shame of walking around as one who's pregnant and not married. That means a lot in the Christian culture as well, but it meant 10 times that in Jewish culture. And I always love that part that Elizabeth, after her child jumps inside of her with joy, is filled with the Spirit. It feels to me like it's foreshadowing of what's to come, right? On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit will fall and Mary will be there, but not for 33 some years till that happens. It's just a taste of what's to come. And then the story continues, and into Luke 2 we go. And in Luke 2, Joseph and Mary have to go to Bethlehem because there's a census. And this is the time when it says in Luke 2, 5, essentially, that Mary is now showing. So now, now walking around bearing a child is real, and they know that these two walking together are not married. That's how she walks around carrying this stigma with her. And not only that, the census is interesting too, and I knew you were thinking that. You're like, what about that census, Chris? You said they went there for that, right? We don't know anything about what census meant at this time. Our census, right? Like we fill out the paper and we like send it back in. We're like, yeah, we exist. I don't know what you're gonna do with that. I watch TV five hours a day. You know, like you just send it back in. But in this time, in this day, they are forced to go to Bethlehem and be accounted for. The census was a way for those in power to regiment people against justice and freedom. It was essentially in the age of antiquity like the ultimate power flex. It was a flex move. Like we are in charge, come and gather here and be accounted. And we'll tell you where to go and what you can and cannot do. Don't forget that's what world you live in. And so they're in the midst of during that and they're carrying a child. But where do they end up for the census? Bethlehem. Apparently God's working something in all of that because it's in Bethlehem that Jesus is to be born. And in fact, he is. And you know where he's born, right? You've heard the, the songs about that. It was away in a manger because there was no place for Jesus. And there he is, in the middle of nowhere, Bethlehem. And after Jesus has been born, there's some shepherds nearby just doing their shepherd thing, flocks and sheep, you know, Shepherds. And shepherds at this time, the lowliest of the low, dirty, no standing. I mean, they certainly, I'm sure they smelled. And they're just out there doing their thing. And what happens for these shepherds just after Jesus is born? The angels show up again. And what is the first thing the angels have to say to the shepherds that they have to say to everybody that they ever show up to? Don't be afraid. 
Don't be afraid. Uh -huh, okay. So then the shepherds go, well, what do, you, what do you got for us? Angel. The angel's like, Jesus, the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for, he's been born in Bethlehem. He's here. He's finally here. Go and see him. And the shepherds are like, what else were we gonna do? So they take their sheep. And the first people who show up to greet Jesus according to Luke's narrative, are the lowliest of the low, the shepherds. And they get there and they tell Mary and Joseph and whoever else is gathered around this story of how these angels met them in the middle of the field, in the middle of the night and said, the Messiah has come. And it fills them with hope again. And it says in Luke 2, 19, that Mary stored these things in her heart and thought about them often. And I think for me, I've typically just rushed through that sentence in particular. It's like, oh, okay, whatever, we'll get to the other stuff. Like what, when's Jesus gonna do some stuff, right? What's interesting is that why would Mary need to take stories like that and store them in her heart and reflect on them often? Because 30 years of silence is about to take place from these moments. Like, it's exciting, this birth narrative stuff. It's cool. Angels are showing up. Like, God's reminding people he's with them. Miracles are happening. And then it's like Jesus is three. And he won't shut up. And he doesn't know where to put his toys. Right, or you gotta change a diaper, or you gotta feed somebody, or what, like all of the things you gotta do in the ordinary and the mundane of life. And you're like, God, you promised some things, but I'm not sure it's happening right now. You gotta reflect on the times in which God was there and what he promised us, which is just something we can relate to because most of our lives are actually lived in the ordinary. It's not like highlight after highlight after highlight, angel after angel after angel, right? It's like a one-time thing. Then you reflect on it and you remember that God is faithful. And so then they go from the manger. Eight days later, they end up in Jerusalem. They gotta get to Jerusalem in eight days because they have to have Jesus circumcised. So they're a good Jewish couple and that's exactly what they need to do. And so when they get to Jerusalem to have Jesus circumcised, an old man is waiting for him there, which is creepy sounding. His name is Simeon. And Simeon is a man who's been faithful to the Lord for many, many years. And he's just been waiting to see the Messiah. It's like he's been holding on. He's been ready to die, but he'd really like to see the Messiah. I imagine he's pretty old, pretty wrinkly, right? Kind of fun, but like on his last leg too. And, he, and he's there, stalking him at the circumcision joint. And when he gets there, he prophesies over Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus is gonna do. And then he looks at Mary and he blesses her. And he says to her this about Jesus. He says, Jesus, your son will reveal the deepest thoughts of many hearts and it will be like a sword will pierce your very soul. Now just go to that moment. You're Mary, you're holding the eight day old son of God. You have no idea what's about to unfold. This old man comes and prophesies what you've been told, what you know to be true. And then he looks at you and he says, this son you're holding, he will reveal to people what's at the very depth of who they are. And it'll be like a sword has pierced your very soul. 
Like, what could that mean? And honestly, I think maybe only mothers could even comprehend something like what that might mean, to know that their son will be responsible for these things. And I think it's kind of a hinge point for even what it means to follow Jesus. Like, because this whole thing of following Jesus is gonna be hard. I've said that before, right? It's not easy to follow Jesus. It's worth it, but it's not easy. Because it's not easy because he's gonna reveal to you what's at the very depths of who you are and help you become who he intends for you to be. That's not an easy process, but it's worth it. And as Jesus is out doing that, sometimes that feels like a sword has pierced our very souls. And people are gonna oppose him because of it. And we're gonna find out he actually gets killed because of it. So not only does Jesus keep company with Mary and her suffering. He keeps company with us, but he invites us to pay attention to the deepest parts of who we are. And so before we get to the end of Mary's story, I wanna backtrack a little bit because it's crazy to think that Mary, the mother of Jesus, wrote a praise song. We don't sing it much these days, but I'd imagine that the early churches certainly sang this song, Mary's Magnificat, it was called, a praise now, I love that Mary wrote this song, especially as we hear things like how Mary stored things in her heart and reflected on them, how she would have this, this crazy life before her. And she wrote a praise song and they, they put it in Luke 1, 46 through 55. And now with this frame of Mary in front of us, think of her penning these words, writing these words, singing these words as a praise to God. Here's what she said. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he took notice of this lowly servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble he has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. And as Mary sings this song of praise, now the company among her and her suffering is the company of the marginalized, the lowly and the poor, those who are among her and with her and who she was a part of. They go together in the midst of this life that God has before them. But then remember, 30 years of silence until Jesus finally comes on the scene to live into the life and ministry he was sent to live. And we know how then she got to see some of that unfold and how, and then her heart was pierced and she witnessed the way people opposed her son but nothing was as powerful. Nothing was as much of a way of suffering as watching her son be crucified. Mary was at the cross. In John 19, 25 through 27, we read this. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. The Marys were all there at the cross. Verse 26, when Jesus saw 
his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved. I want you to just join Mary at the foot of the cross for a moment and think of that very thing. When Jesus saw her from the cross, her son, whom 33 years earlier she had held in her arms and someone said he would be the one you think he's gonna be, that God said. Now he's hanging on a cross and he sees her from that place. And when he sees her standing there beside John, the disciple who Jesus loved, he says to her, speaking from the cross to his mother, he says to her here, dear woman, here is your son. And he said to his disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Jesus looks out at his mother hanging from a cross and he speaks words to her to make sure she is cared for as he's being killed. Like a sword piercing your very soul. And as Mary is now joined by a company of women, the disciple John, those friends who stick with you in the midst of your suffering, they're all there together. And what I don't want us to do is rush past this moment. I know Easter's coming and we'll end with some hope, I promise. But sit with Mary for a moment at the foot of the cross and imagine what it would have felt like the utter hopelessness and suffering watching your son be killed. And we know there's more. Jesus is buried in the tomb. He's raised to new life. He visits and gathers with his disciples. He ascends to go and be with the Father. And now we find ourselves in the book of Acts. Acts 1 verse 14 says that Mary was among those gathered when Jesus said, stay in Jerusalem until the gift of my spirit comes. Be praying, be gathered together. Mary is named among that group. Mary, the mother of Jesus, will then be present in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit breaks in on the day of Pentecost and fills those gathered praying in Jerusalem with the Holy Spirit to launch the movement that is the church. And that's the last we hear of her, Acts 1.14. What a woman and what a journey. But I think what happens for us is we have a propensity to be numb about matters of suffering. We rush through them. And when we're numb about matters of suffering, we rush into all of the rest of our life being numb as well. And we live numbed out lives. Mary models for us a life in which she invites us to grieve and engage the suffering, the suffering of our lives, the suffering of others, the suffering of our world. And we find that when we feel again, and when we sit in that, it revives our passion. It brings us to life again, just like the spirit was doing in these early followers who sat in their grief and their hopelessness only to find that God broke through again and started something new and their passion was revived. And those who preached the gospel and started churches in the book of Acts are unlike those we saw following Jesus around before that. Their passion was revived.
For out of the darkness, right out of wombs and out of tombs, God is mysteriously doing something new. Barbara Brown Taylor says it like this. She says, new life starts in the dark. Whether it is a seed in the ground, a baby in the womb, or Jesus in the tomb, it starts in the dark. And this is a sermon that has no like great next step application. It's just an invitation to join Mary and sit in the suffering. And know this, Easter's coming. But don't get there too quick at the risk of numbing what it is to feel to be human and to have a God who meets you in the midst of that, who like he told Mary over and over again, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. So I just wanna give you space to sit with that. I don't know what that'll look like. I don't know what you'd take to the Lord in all of that. I don't know what you'd invite him to speak into your life. I don't know what you need to say to him, but I just wanna give you space to do that. And then in a few moments here, I'll lead us into communion and hopefully some level of hope will arise as we come and meet Jesus at the table of the Lord. And till then, take this moment with him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, here we are before you, sitting with Mary, the mother of Jesus, grieving with her. And in the midst of this, we likely grieve our own suffering and the suffering of those we love, the suffering that our world endures. Help us grieve and help us meet you in the midst of the suffering and the pain and the heartache. As you remind us throughout this narrative of the life of Mary that you are a God who's with us. And I pray for those times in which that's hard for us to comprehend or believe that you'd reveal yourself to us, even if it's in some small, little quiet way. Would we hold tightly to the promise that you are a God who is with us? And we thank you that your son Jesus models this life of withness. That he models this life of love and that he goes willingly to the cross to show us in this earth shattering way what love looks like. And yet some grieve it and we grieve it for the moment. We watch your son's body be taken down from the cross and buried in the tomb and we wait. But the power of your spirit does not allow him to stay dead and you raise Jesus to new life, the first of the resurrected ones. And so we hold to the hope of the promise that you make that you will come again and restore all things and there will be no more suffering. And so we sit with you in the darkness of life and we wait believing that in some mysterious way, God, you're birthing something new, you're conceiving something new. May it be so. We love you. We need you. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information, 
or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.